It's been too long since we've covered some ancient history on this podcast. The last few episodes have all focused on history in and around the 19th and early 20th centuries, and that's because a lot of incredible and interesting things happened in those years that are relatively well documented. But some of the most intriguing history is not as well documented or as easy to piece together, because when you go as far back as we're going today, all you have are fragments of a larger story. A story you have to piece together through what its people left behind, and if you're lucky, some scraps of ancient writing or art that you have to interpret thousands of years later with a perspective that is probably very different from those held by the hands that created that art or carved those hieroglyphs onto stone thousands of years ago. The history of the Scorpion King is such a story. The Scorpion King is more than a campy five-part movie franchise starring The Rock. He is a mysterious and alluring figure and was a foundational part of Egyptian history. The Scorpion King ruled before the first dynasty of Egypt was even established. He was Dynasty Zero. With history that ancient comes quite a bit of speculation, controversy, theory, and arguments amongst Egyptologists. But though our understanding of who he was and what he accomplished is maddeningly incomplete, we can fit together the few puzzle pieces we have to get a more focused, if still imperfectly fuzzy, idea of the real Scorpion King. By the way, huge shout-out to Eric, Holger, and Froda for becoming my newest patrons. A thousand thank yous for your support. Join me today, friends, as we go back, all the way back, to before the first dynasty of Egypt began. Let's go back to Dynasty Zero and meet the Scorpion King. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. When we think of ancient Egypt, our minds usually jump to elaborate royal tombs, pyramids, ornate temples, and towering obelisks. And ancient Egypt did produce those things. But its history goes back much further than the ancient monuments that still stand, weathering the winds and sun, outlasting the pharaohs that built them by thousands of years. The longevity of the Egyptian dynastic period is incredible. It consisted of 30, some say 31, dynasties that lasted roughly from 3150 BCE to 30 BCE, ending with the death of Cleopatra VII and the incorporation of Egypt into the Roman Empire. That means Egypt's dynastic period alone existed for well over 3,000 years. But it didn't spring up overnight. Egypt's dynastic longevity was the result of thousands of years of development, trade, diplomacy, horticulture, animal husbandry, and the formulation of many different bands and tribes into chiefdoms, statehood, and eventually the dynastic system of rule. Modern humans, according to Dr. Bob Breyer of Long Island University, arrived in Egypt around 45,000 years ago. 
Before we got there, Neanderthals had already made their way to the Nile Delta, and before they arrived, other hominins had been surviving around the Nile using stone axes to carve out a living there from around 700,000 years ago. The first modern humans would have seen a different Egypt than the one we see today. It was more lush, greener, and wetter, which means people were able to populate areas that are nothing but desert today. Based on the tools that have been found, it's estimated that the first modern humans to venture into Egypt consisted of small communities, bands of around 25 to 50 individuals living together at a time. They used stone tools, many of which were made of flint and obsidian. They fished, ate shellfish and mollusks, and had a life expectancy of around 30. Eventually, they started caring for wild grains, a stepping stone to the organized agriculture that would come later. The bow appeared, making protein acquisition easier and hunting more efficient. These small bands of people surrounding the Nile were the foundation upon which the Egyptian civilization was built. Around 10,000 years ago, prehistoric Egyptians moved from primarily hunting and gathering to agriculture. By the late Neolithic, around 7,500 years ago, they began domesticating animals like cattle and goats. Even cattle burials have been found. Prehistoric Egyptians built shrines and even stone circles, which predate Stonehenge by a thousand years. Pottery was developed, evidence for the use of cosmetics emerged, and those bands of 25 to 50 people became villages of around 150 people, peppering the banks of the Nile. Life expectancy wasn't much better than it had been while hunting and gathering, and wouldn't be for thousands of years. But an increase in the more reliable food sources, brought about through agriculture and animal domestication, meant the population could grow. A study done on 257 skeletal remains and mummified bodies from 1700 to 1550 BCE, or 3700 to 3550 years ago, gave an average life expectancy of 19 years. That's not because people were dropping dead at 19. It's because the infant mortality rate was so high that it brought down the average age significantly. If you made it past childhood, you could expect to live around 30 if you were a woman, and around 34 if you were a man. That study focused only on wealthier Egyptians within the same couple of centuries, so we can't use it as a blanket age for all of dynastic Egyptian history. But it shows that, even later on in history, life was hard, and oftentimes, it didn't last long. There were, of course, people who lived much longer, well into old age. But making it to a ripe old age was much less likely than it is today. Life expectancy fluctuated over the millennia, but it never even came close to the life expectancy rates we see today in places with modern-day healthcare. This meant the early Egyptians were familiar with death, and in the late Neolithic, Egyptians began burying their dead with objects like cosmetics, pottery, and weapons. Bodies were placed in sandpit burials, which is potentially the origin for Egypt's later methods of mummification. These people would have noticed that when you bury a body in the sand, it naturally dehydrates, causing a natural form of mummification, a process they would master later on. As the population grew, division of labor appeared. Potters crafted vessels made from clay, 
brewers made beer from dates, pomegranates, herbs, and other local ingredients. According to the British Museum, beer was an important part of Egyptian life. It was consumed on a daily basis, and laborers, like those who built the pyramids, were allotted a ration of one and one-third gallons, or ten pints, of beer a day. Every year between June and August, the Nile would flood, bringing nutrient-rich black sand with it. This kept the region fertile and allowed the ancient Egyptians to cultivate new crops every year. The flooding of the Nile was key to the development and survival of Egyptian civilization. The Nile was life. The Egyptians constructed their calendar based on the yearly Nile flood. There were three seasons, Akhet, when the river flooded, Peret, the growing season, and Shemu, the harvest season. I apologize if my Midwestern mouth has mispronounced any of those words. The Nile's flood allowed the cultivation of food and acted as a highway, making travel much more efficient from one place to the next, and would make hauling building materials much easier in the millennia to come. The Egyptians became expert boat builders, and images of boats are some of the earliest designs found on pre-dynastic vessels. As the population of early Egypt grew, social hierarchy and politics became more complicated. Religion became more organized. Social stratification meant some had more than others. It's debated as to whether the organization of society was a cooperative venture or one brought about through force. It's possible it was a mix of the two. Leaders emerged, various leaders in Upper and Lower Egypt. The Nile flows north before it meets the Mediterranean Sea. Since the Nile was such an important aspect of Egyptian life, the southern kingdom was considered Upper Egypt, as this is where the Nile flows from, and the north, where the Nile flows upward until it empties into the sea, was called Lower Egypt. So Upper Egypt was in the south, and Lower Egypt was in the north. According to the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, Upper Egypt was called Deshret, or the Red Land, after the desert there. Lower Egypt, which stretched just south of what is now Cairo and northward to the Mediterranean Sea, was called Kemet, or the Black Land, most likely named after the fertile black soil brought in with the flooding of the Nile. For a long time, it seems these two kingdoms were at odds. Even leaders within these two kingdoms violently clashed, fighting for territory and resources. Then, over 5,200 years ago, a king rose to power. A king who fought to unite his kingdom into one force that was Upper Egypt. His name was Selk, or Weha. We know him as Scorpion. In 1897 and 1898, there was an archaeological survey of Hierakonpolis, the city of the hawk known as Nekin to the ancient Egyptians. This was one of the largest urban sites situated along the Nile well before the construction of the pyramids. 
at Nekin, some of the most important artifacts pertaining to the early dynastic period of Egypt have been found. It's a place where we can start to see prehistory become history. It was here that 120 plus years ago, the name of the Scorpion King was resurrected. A mace head was found, buried in the Temple of Horus. Made of limestone and measuring 25 centimeters high, this mace head, shaped like an upside-down pear, while constructed in the shape of a weapon, was most likely ceremonial, given its incredible weight and size. It was painstakingly carved by skilled hands around 5,200 years ago. Flowers, animals, and people are all depicted. The central figure is a king, large in stature, towering over the other people carved into the mace head. Kings of Egypt and the later pharaohs were often depicted as being much larger than their subjects, a representation of their importance and power. Before the king, we can read his name. It's depicted by a flower and a scorpion. This figure was King Scorpion, wearing the white crown of Upper Egypt. He wears a tunic, and the tail of an animal, perhaps a bull, extends out from the back of his tunic. It's a scene depicting agriculture. Scorpion holds a hoe in his hands, ready to cut open the earth beneath him. Attendants stand before him, ready to carry the dirt away. Behind him, two men are depicted holding large fans, protecting their king from the heat of the sun. Behind them, we see different marsh plants, followed by several women clapping their hands, possibly dancing. In front of the king, a man pours sand on the ground. This is a common scene depicted in the dynastic period and suggests the king is preparing the foundations of a structure or building. Below the king, water flows, perhaps suggesting the building of a dam or some sort of irrigation structure. Two other men stand before the king, carrying a standard representing his territories. Above the king, at least seven other standards are shown. From each one, a bird hangs down from its neck. Standards like these are often interpreted as representing the territories and peoples conquered by a king. This suggests that Scorpion was a warrior king who had conquered and subjugated during his reign. The mace head is frustratingly incomplete. Not all of its pieces have survived the past five millennia, which is terribly unfortunate, because we can only venture to guess what was depicted on those missing pieces. It's debated as to what else was represented. Pretty much everything about the Scorpion King is hotly debated because interpreting what has been left behind is difficult. Some Egyptologists believe the missing pieces of the mace head may have represented Scorpion wearing the red crown of Lower Egypt. If true, this would mean that Scorpion may have been the first king to unite the upper and lower kings of Egypt, which would be huge. It would make him the first king in history to unite Egypt into one kingdom. Due to a lack of evidence, other Egyptologists believe this to be a bit of a stretch. For a long time, the unification of the two lands has been attributed to a king named Narmer, or perhaps Menes, though many Egyptologists today believe Menes and Narmer were the same person, who ruled Egypt sometime around 5,100 years ago. 
It is Narmer who is listed as the first king of Egypt, Dynasty I, the beginning of Egypt's long dynastic period that ended thousands of years later with Cleopatra and Rome's conquest of Egypt. If Scorpion had been the one to unite the two lands, then he would have been the first founding forebear of Egypt's dynasties. But it's much more likely that he unified only Upper Egypt, which still would have been an incredible feat. The Scorpion King, what he actually accomplished, who he really was, and where he fits into the chronology of kings and queens are hot debates in Egyptology. For a long time after the Macehead was discovered, it was believed the Scorpion King was a myth, an unverifiable mystery that had probably never existed. There just wasn't enough evidence to prove otherwise. That was until 1988, when Egyptologists Gunther Dreyer and Werner Kaiser of the German Archaeological Institute found his tomb. They were digging in Abydos, one of the oldest cities in ancient Egypt. It's one of the most important archaeological sites in the country. There were temples there. There still are, and you can visit them today. Abydos is a little over 300 miles south of Cairo. It was here that the first kings and queens of Egypt were buried. You might be wondering why I keep calling the early kings of Egypt kings and not pharaohs. That's because, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the word pharaoh, which is actually a Greek term based on the Egyptian word for pharaoh, which means great house, wasn't adopted until the middle of the 18th dynasty, or the New Kingdom, which was still a good 1600 years out from the Scorpion King's day. So King Scorpion lived even before pharaohs were pharaohs, and when his tomb was discovered, he was brought out of myth and thrust back into history. When Egyptologists first entered his tomb, now labeled as Tomb U-J, they realized they were unfortunately not the first to do so. The tomb had been pillaged, and King Scorpion's body had been stolen. Tomb and artifact robbery have been huge issues for Egypt, and still are. So much information has been irreplaceably lost because it has been stolen and sold for profit. It's an issue that goes back for millennia. It was never a secret that wealthy Egyptians were buried with objects of their wealth. If you're a tourist anywhere or are looking online for ancient artifacts, be extremely careful when you come across someone trying to sell you something they claim is old. If it's not a scam, make sure it comes from a verified legal source. Otherwise, you might accidentally be feeding your money into the black market of stolen artifacts. I know that was a little bit of a side rant, but destruction of any kind when it comes to archaeological sites really gets me going. While King Scorpion's actual body had fallen victim to tomb robbery, he was buried in a 12-chambered tomb made of mud bricks, and some of his things were missed by the thieves, or smashed and left there. From these objects, Egyptologists have been able to scrape together more information about the first king to unify Upper Egypt. There was an ivory scepter indicating this was indeed a royal tomb. Carbon-14 dating confirmed the scepter was around 3,250 years old. One of the chambers was full of pottery shards from jars used to hold items and wine for the king to enjoy in the afterlife. On each jar was the symbol of a scorpion. 
According to Pat McGovern, scientific director of the Biomolecular Archaeology Project, 700 of these jars once held wine. Those 700 jars equate to nearly 1,200 gallons of wine, or 4,500 liters. That's a lot of sauce. He had beer, too, just in case he was in the mood for something different in the afterlife. What's incredible about this wine is that it was imported. Trade was a huge part of ancient Egypt, even back in Scorpion's day. The wine from his tomb came from the Jordan Valley and surrounding vicinity. This speaks to the influence and wealth of the Scorpion King. The wine was made with lots of Levantine spices, including thyme and coriander, and it was produced with figs, giving us a rare example of figged wine. Also found in the tomb were 160 bone and ivory tags about the size of postage stamps. On each of these tags, a picture was carved, which, according to Dreyer, the dig's team leader, could possibly represent records of things like linen and oil delivered to King Scorpion. They may also represent notes, numbers, lists of other kings' names, and the names of institutions. This has sparked yet another controversy surrounding the Scorpion King, because if these symbols represented what these grave goods were and where they came from, then they are the first examples we have of Egyptian hieroglyphs, which no one thought existed for at least another hundred years. According to the British Museum, since the discovery of the Scorpion King's tomb, some ceremonial scenes at the rock art site of El Kawi in Egypt have been discovered. These carvings, which may be upwards of 6,000 years old, depict a very early formative stage of hieroglyphic script. Although the rock art isn't an example of phonetic writing, it does, according to John Coleman Darnell of Yale University, provide the intellectual background for moving from depictions of the natural world to hieroglyphs. This rock art predates the Scorpion King by probably a few centuries. Rene Friedman of the British Museum speculates that the Scorpion King may have ordered the development of writing to record the payment of taxes to the royal treasury. So not only did the Scorpion King possibly unify Upper Egypt, he also may have been a forerunner in the invention of hieroglyphs being developed as Egypt's writing system. Again, this is all hugely controversial, but it's clear that whoever he was, the Scorpion King was an incredibly important and influential figure in the history of Egypt and the development of one of the most long-lived civilizations in world history. Oh, and there was also a King Scorpion II, which makes things even more confusing. Like King Scorpion I, King Scorpion II is a controversial figure, and no one can seem to agree on exactly who he was or even when he was. Some Egyptologists believe he is either the same person as Narmer, or Menes, the first king of Dynasty I, or perhaps he was a king that Narmer conquered, enabling him to finally unify the upper and lower kingdoms, setting off the long, dynastic history of Egypt. By the way, if the history of Egypt is something you want to learn more about, the History of Egypt podcast by Egyptologist Dominic Perry is a great place to start. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I was not asked to promote that podcast, by the way. I just genuinely think it's good. So there really was a Scorpion King, and he was a big part of Egypt's foundation. 
the movie series, not historically accurate, as you probably already figured. But it's a fun reminder of just how far CGI has come. And perhaps there's still more out there to be found on the Scorpion King. Egypt still constantly surprises us with new discoveries. Secrets revealed after thousands of years buried in the sand or hidden away in yet undiscovered tombs. What will we find next? Only time will tell. Thank you so much for listening to the history of the Scorpion King. I really hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. Or you can make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Thank you so much for listening. There are upwards of a million podcasts out there now, so I know how many you have to choose from. Thank you for choosing mine today. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme songs from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history. <laughs>